Hey, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I'm Charlie, uh, the lead pastor here. Man, we're really glad you're worshiping with us. And we are in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit called Forgotten God. We've been reading this book together in our small groups and kind of discussing some different themes from it here on Sunday mornings. And glad that you're here. And basically, this idea that God sent His Spirit, that God to live inside of us and to give us this power, to give us comfort, direction, guidance. You know, we have this incredible resource, kind of like the, um, like the trailer says, where it's like, you know, we, um, we got this great gift, but maybe we don't know that we have it, or maybe we do, we don't know how to open it, and maybe we're just a little nervous about it, and so we just kind of been talking about what the Holy Spirit can do. We talked about that, that basically Jesus described him as a, as a better helper. Like, I'm, I've helped you, but there's a better helper coming. And, and then he, he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into everything that you need to know and will lead you in what you need to do. And, um, and there are all these incredible roles in life that he wants to give us, but yet we're just kind of stuck here. And so we're going to talk about another one of those roles today, is this, this kind of comfort and assurance of relationship that, um, that, that he can give us. And so it's, it's really cool. And so I've been thinking about this. This week, I was kind of been thinking about what um, my last couple of weeks have looked like, and you know, I've been married actually the, the, this this June, and as we get closer, I'm sure I'll find more ways to talk about it. So, you know, it'll be 25 years uh, that my wife and I have been married, and we're really excited about thinking about celebrating that. And been married a long time, and um, you know, sometimes you just kind of get into these 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 ruts. Where it just feels like things aren't things aren't okay, like they just things just seem a little little tense, a little stressed, and so I, I'm talking to her, and something doesn't seem right. It maybe just seems a little 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 more snappy than usual, and I, and and then I start to think like, did I, did I do something? I don't think I did something. Did I do something? And I start asking her like, did I do something? She's like, no, you didn't do something. Or sometimes it feels like, no, you didn't do anything. I'm like, Ugh. right? And I'm, I'm like, and 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 things, nothing has happened. But something's, something's off, right? And so I had an opportunity for a work trip this weekend. Uh, uh, went to Dallas for a couple of days and had the opportunity to bring Heidi with me, which was really cool. And um, we're, driving, we're driving down, uh, heading to Dallas, and, and I look over to her and I'm like, does this feel good? It's like, what do you mean? It's like, all the things that stress us out, we're like 70 miles an hour driving as fast away from them as, as we can. <laughs> and she just kind of laughed and... Um, and then uh, Thursday night in Denison, Texas, uh, having um, dinner at this Mexican restaurant, and I look over there at her, and I can just tell, I can just tell. I just look at her face, and, and her eyes, her expression, her demeanor, and in that moment, I just knew, okay, 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 we're good, we're good. For a while there, it didn't feel like we were good, even though she kept telling me we were. It didn't feel like we were good. Now, now I can feel it. Now, now I know. And then we just had a great couple of days just kind of reconnecting, putting a stressful couple of weeks in the past and just in, enjoying each other for, for a couple of weeks. So I bring that up because I want to ask you this question. Would you say that you and God are, are good? Are you good? Is your relationship good? Like, like, I know I love him, and I know that he loves me, and the way that we relate, it just, it just feels like we're, we're, doing, we're, doing, we're doing really well. I mean, we're good. Does my asking of that question sound weird to you? 
Do you not even know how you would even begin to process that question? How, do, how, would, you define, how would you answer that? Not yes or no, but how? Is it based on something you know? Is it based on something that you feel? Is it based on kind of what some circumstance you like? How would you even begin to answer it? Because there's this thing that Christians have liked, they like to say, they like to say this at least since I was in college, so at least for the last 75 years. We've been talking like this, right? Where it's like, where is Christianity? It's not a religion. It's a relationship. It's about a relationship with God. It's not about a religion. Which is great on the marketing materials, I guess, right? What's that mean? I said, it's a religion, isn't it? I mean, it just you, you follow the rules and God tells you what to do. Like, relationship with God is a, is, a, is a phrase we like to use. But if I asked you, how is your relationship with God? Are y'all good? Do we, even, do we even have categories for that? And so I think it's important for us. There's a role that the Holy Spirit is wanting to play in our life to help us kind of answer that question. But even really to answer that question, I think there's a couple of things that we're going we're to look at in this passage in Galatians. I think it's really important for us <coughs> excuse me, to make sure, because this passage kind of gives us some clarity about who we were, who we are, and who we could be. Because I, I think maybe sometimes we get some of these things a little bit muddled, but if we're clear about who we were before we had God, who we are now, but what life could be, who we could be, um, I, I, think, I think what it means to have a relationship with God will come into greater focus, and who we could be is probably greater than what we think we could be. So the passage is in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So Paul's in the middle of a metaphor here, I'll explain. Verse 1, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So he's using a metaphor here of a kid whose dad's really, really rich, and he is the heir to all of the everything. He own, he's essentially the heir of the house, the, the land, the servants, the, the cattle, everything. He owns everything, essentially, But for a certain season, while he's a certain age, he's really kind of just like one of the servants in the the house. Really, he's kind of less than a servant in the house because the other servants in the house can tell him what to do. Right? So even though you own everything and you're kind of, you're essentially the owner, you're kind of less than a servant right now because the servants get to tell you what to do. So it's kind of, so... This, this begins his metaphor. Verse 3. So also, when we were underage, now he's talking about us spiritually, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So I'm not criticizing Paul here. He's way smarter than me, better writer than me. But he gets a little lost in his metaphor here. And I, and I totally track with this. It's fine that he gets his metaphors confused a little bit because it's very common for me to get in the middle of a story that I think is going really well. And then you're laughing and I'm laughing. And when it's over, I'm like... I don't even really remember 
um, why I brought that up, but I'm glad you enjoyed it, and we just kind of move on. It just happens to me, right? I get it. So he's got this metaphor here he's talking about, so it's, it's kind of like this kid who owns everything. He's an heir, and he's a son, but he's also a slave because of how old he is. And you're kind of like that. You're a slave that God then makes the heir, and it, it, it's, a little, it's a little complicated. But essentially what he's saying is, is you know, the, uh, someone, a kid, he's a slave, but then after a certain point, he becomes the heir. He says, kind of, it's the same for you, right? Uh, you're not born the heir like this kid is, but you're at a certain time, apart from Christ, you're kind of in this bondage. And then at the appropriate time, and in this instance, the appropriate time is when Jesus comes, you move statuses like the kid does. The kid moves from you know, one of the servants to the heir of the of 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 the property of of you know the the ranch or whatever, right? The kingdom. And so you move from a spiritual slave to an heir in God's kingdom. And so he's kind of making this metaphor, and then he kind of talks about the, the role that the Holy Spirit plays. So he's kind of making this case for kind of who we used to be. And then what God does when Jesus comes, and then the role that the Holy Spirit can and will play in our life and our relationship with God. So let's just kind of make sure, kind of dive in a little bit deeper here, make sure we understand the points here that Paul's trying to make. And the first one is this, is that you were once a slave. This goes for all of us. There was a time in our life, according to what Paul's talking about here, it's like everybody here was once a slave. Everybody here was once, uh, had, had no freedom uh, this word, I mean, it's a, it's a heavy word. It's a strong word. It, um, it overwhelms us sometimes as Americans. I, I think sometimes as Americans, we kind of, we buck that idea of a lack of freedom or being enslaved or a servant to anything. We like to think of ourselves as having always been independent. Um, and so then I say, hey, you know, that there was a time in your life before you knew Christ that you were a slave to something. Like, I've never, I know, no, I've always been in control. Right? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago as we were talking about this list of fears that keep us from really embracing the Spirit, that I don't want the Spirit to have control of me because I like to be in control. And, and, and I asked this question kind of you know, rhetorically. Has there ever been a, a time in your life where you really felt like, I'm completely in control? Our, our idea about having control of our life is mythical. You don't have control. And to the degree that I do have control, I'm not doing a good job, right? And so he's saying that, 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 you're, that you're a slave because of sin. And, and again, one of the reasons why I think that we, we, we kind of reject that and maybe we misunderstand what he's saying is I think there's a lot of different definitions for, for slavery, for, for freedom. And we like to think of ourselves as having always been free because we define freedom this way. We define freedom as that no one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. No one, tell, no one tells me what to do. All right? Which I would like to suggest is a very two-year-old definition of, of freedom. Not that the definition is two-year-old, but it's a definition that a two-year-old would have. That no one can tell me what to do. And that's the freedom that a two-year-old desires. And, um, and, 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 and they express it. And they express it in all sorts of ways. We had a two-year-old once. We've had three two-year-olds, actually, over the years. But our very first two-year-old was, let's say she was saucy. Right? She, was, she, she had a spice to her. And um, sometimes people like to tell me stories like, man, I feel like I've, I've, got, uh, I've, I've got a kid with strong-willed, strong-willed kids. Like, tell me your story. And they tell me a story, and I just giggle. 
internally. I'm trying to be as pastoral with you as I possibly can as you're pouring out your heart to me. But I was like, man, that would have been, that would have been a joy. That would have been a pleasant, pleasant surprise. This, she, was, she, was, she, was, she was tough. And at two years old, she, she could articulate herself very well. At two years old, she and her mom were having a little, you know, little, little, little thing. And um, she, she, she says to mom, I am sick and tired of you telling me what to do all the time. Two, two years old. Again, so they're already in the middle of the thing. So Heidi is already at a, you know, past the breaking point already. And so she responds to you, well, you better get used to it. It's going to be like this for a long time. Right? And I swear to you, I'm not exaggerating. This kid would walk around the house. She, she, no, one's, no one's telling her anything. No one says she's got to clean up her room. Nothing. She, she has complete freedom, theoretically, to do whatever she wants around the house. And she's walking around the house going, no, 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 no. Like, what? No. What are, you, what are you practicing? And then I asked her about this later. There's no way she can remember this from two, but she did it longer than she was two. She's like, yeah, I, I remember I would do that sometimes. Like, like I, would, I would go into the bathroom and practice how I was going to tell you no. I'm like, what on earth is wrong with you? <laughs> and um, she would say, she, she, she would just, her thing, I, I ask her to do something. I, I know, I, I know. Mom be like, you, yes. <laughs> you got to hear with this, I know, you, yes. She wanted freedom, right? Freedom, freedom. No one, no one can tell me what to do. And, and, and I guess... I guess by that definition, you know, there's no person telling you what to do. So you have a, a very limited definition of freedom, but let's, let's describe that freedom this way. I could place you in a building that you could not get out of, but there's no one in there. And so there's no one telling you what to do. So by that definition, you would have freedom, but it doesn't feel like freedom. Because there are incredible limits to what you can or can't do. And, and, and there's a confinement to it. And so that confinement, that lack of ability to really be able to, to blossom, to be who God has called you to be, that's, that's the slavery. Sin has you in a place where you theoretically may have no one telling you what to do, but you cannot be who God has called you to be. God is calling you to be so much more than what you are, but you can't. You are limited. And so you are enslaved to sin. And what we call freedom isn't freedom. And I'll illustrate it this way. There's an idea out there with regards to sexuality that what freedom looks like is the ability to choose to have sex with whomever you want, whenever you want. And that's sexual freedom. Again, by a two-year-old's definition of freedom, that is freedom. No one is telling me what I can or cannot do. But there is not freedom there. Because what that is, 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 is someone trying to fill this hole in their heart, this God-given desire and need for real intimacy. And you're trying to fill it with this supposed freedom that you have. And you cannot, no matter how much you express your so-called freedom, you cannot solve this, this, this heart problem that you have, this need and desire for intimacy that can only come when God places your husband or your wife in your life. And you are able to restrict one nature of freedom and to give yourself fully to this one person that God has placed in your life. 
And then you experience real freedom to be and become who God has called you to be. And to experience life the way that it was intended. And for my heart, and this need that I have for real connection and intimacy, is, can only be satisfied. So I give up this false idea for, of freedom to experience true freedom in my, in, my, in my sexual life, in my intimacy with my wife. And so we have to realize that in, I, we, could, we could use a dozen different examples about how we think that in sin we have freedom. But really it is only bringing a different type of bondage and it is when we can release ourselves from that that we have really, real freedom. So Paul makes this clear, man. At one time when you were under age spiritually, before you knew Christ, you were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Verse 4, but... When the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So saying that you were once a slave, so you were once a slave, but, but that God made you His heir. You were a slave, but God makes you an heir. And I think it's really important that we just spend just a minute to make sure that we're clear about what we're talking about here. He's saying here is that basically when you were once a slave and your sin was overwhelming you and you were estranged in your relationship with God and that God put you back in a relationship and now you become His very son or daughter. That's a big deal. It's a big deal because I think sometimes when we think about, you know, Jesus died on the cross for me. So what does that mean? So he died for my sins. Well, what does that mean? See, I get forgiveness. All of that's true. All of that's true. But it is only just one, one piece, one piece of what he did. Because sometimes I think we limit this to just forgiveness. Now, I don't want to minimize forgiveness because it's a really, really, really big deal. Because let's just think about it for a second. You, you owe some incredibly large debt. A million dollars, right? Oh, a mil- you owe a million dollars. You don't even know how you even got in this situation. You're completely overwhelmed. You're completely stressed out. You have no means really to pay. And the payments that you're trying to make, you can't keep up with. It's overwhelming you. And, and the person comes to you and is like, Hey, guess what? I've, I've been noticing how this is killing you. That it's just kind of this spiritual, moral kind of emotional weight on you and it's, it's wrecking your finances and your life. Hey, let's just, we're just going to call it good. I forgive you. You don't owe me any more money. If that's all that happens in your relationship with God, if that's all, the, if that's all that dude does, you don't walk out of there and be like, that's it, that's all you got. That's all you're going to do today? You ain't got snacks? Right? I mean, you'd be like, you'd be overwhelmingly grateful. I would imagine that, that, that a lot of you, if, if we can go way south of a million dollars, like if, if, if the bank that, that had your student loans were to come to you and be like, ah, eh, we'll just forget it, we'll just call it good, that you would, I mean, you'd want to hug somebody. I never wanted to hug a banker before. I'm going to find me a banker, I'm going to go hug, right? It's just that big a deal, which is why there's such, something so appealing politically when a politician will say that with student loan forgiveness there's something that's like, it's not just, it's not just money. It's, it's, it's a freedom from an overwhelming burden. And you're like, I don't care what your other 75 political views are. If you can get rid of my student loan debt, you got my vote. Right? So people, people respond to that because, again, it's not just money. 
It's the freedom. And that's a huge deal for God to do, to take you from being in this overwhelming amount of debt and just calling you good. Everything's just good. But that's not all that he did. Now here's where like, I can connect with Paul because I'm about to just really mess up this metaphor really bad where it doesn't make any sense anymore, right? But imagine you, this billionaire or whatever that you're indebted to says, man, you know, actually I kind of like you. And I got this million-dollar estate um, uh, pretty close to actually where you live. If you'd lie, I'm not really using it. You can just have that. That's weird. It would never happen. And that's why the metaphor is no good, Okay. What would you say? Nah, I'm good. You'd be like, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, and while we're at it, I'm just going to go ahead and put you in the will so that when I die, you'll, you'll be taken care of for your entire life. That's a really weird thing to say, right? It's not, it's not a great metaphor, which is, which is why the, the love of God is hard to describe in a metaphor because that's what he did. He didn't just look at your debt and say, I'm going to forgive you where you can be neutral with me, which again would be huge. If all God did was take you from where you were in this huge debt with him to where you could now be neutral with him, that would be a great act of kindness, love, and mercy, and God would be awesome. But that's not all that he did. He also gave you incredible riches, and he put you in the will. He made you his heir, where all that his is ultimately going to be yours. All of the resources that God has, everything that belongs to God, you are ultimately a son or daughter who will inherit that. That's that's what God did. And I think that it is important. I think it is very important for us to make sure that we understand that I was in a really bad state. I was a slave. I don't want to gloss over the situation that I was in. That God has now given me freedom from that debt, freedom to, to overcome sin, but in addition to that, has overwhelmed me with riches and made me his son, made me his daughter. That's who I am now. That is a big deal. And I think we, we need to always take some time and not, and, and not ever minimize or trivialize or just ignore this great, this great thing that God has taken us from here to here to overflowing here. And so you were once a slave, and, and God made you his heir. And, and, and the way that he says it here, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, it's important for us to make sure that we understand that, because the way that he says that, essentially, you, you see that word, Abba, It'd be really good if you just kind of read in the word dad. Dad. God puts his spirit in you, and, 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 and that spirit lets you know God's, God's your dad. I could, I could tell you all throughout, you know, you, you know, read the Bible, you've heard these things. You know, God is father. Yes, God is father. I understand. I understand what God is father. God's like a father. And you hear God's like a father, and you have one set of images in your head. But if I say God's like your dad, that's something completely different. He is a father. He is an authoritative figure. He's your creator. But this is different than that. This is different than an authoritative figure who created you. 
This is a dad. You may have grown up and only had a father. And so that's the only one of those two images that you can really relate with. But I think even those of us who may have only had a father can understand what it would mean to also have a dad. A dad that just loves me. He's there for me. He cares for me. He, he, he provides for me. He, he played with me. He was my dad. And I love my dad. And my dad loves me. And this is not some transactional authority figure kind of relationship. This is an intimate love relationship between me and my dad. So you used to be a slave. And, and now God's your dad. And I say that to you and you're like, man, that's just preacher talk. Right? This is preacher talk. This is something preachers say. I just kind of give them church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All throughout the Bible, God's Father, God the Father, God the Father. Ooh, wow. It's like, you know, preacher said, God, here's what you need to understand. That this word Abba is best translated not as Father, like you think, but more like Dad or Daddy, symbolizing the intimate relationship that you can have with God the Father. You should write that down. Yeah, you write it down, you write it down, I write it down. Like, so I wrote it down. It's not real, though. It's preacher real. It's not real, real. What you're describing about one can have a relationship with, with God the way that a, a, a child would have with a dad that loves the child and the child loves the dad... I don't know about that. What does he say? Because this is true, verse 6, because this is true, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And it is that Spirit within you that says, God, you're dead. So you were once a slave. God made you His heir. And it is the Spirit. The Spirit confirms this. And gives you life, hope, and peace. The Spirit tells you this is true. I can tell you it's true. I can read it to you. I can explain it to you. I can tell you Abba means dad. I can use all sorts of illustrations. But what the Bible does says is that it's the Spirit that will confirm this to you. It was a reality. It was a reality. The way Paul kind of describes this makes... makes, makes it was true. You were a slave... Then Jesus comes in, and now you are his heir. It's true. It's factually true. Whether you feel it or not, whether you experience it or not, whether you know about it or not, it's factually true. And then what Paul says, because it was true, it was important to God to send his spirit to you so that you could know it internally that it's true. That is one of the reasons why he sent the spirit. So that you could know something that is factually true. It was so important to him that you know that you are loved by him like a dad. That he sent his spirit to remind you. To let you know something that you didn't know was true. And to remind you as often as you need it that it is true. 
As many of you know, not everyone necessarily knows this, we have, my wife and I, we have three daughters, um, 21, 18, and 7, right? Nice gap there. And uh, the seven-year-old, um, we, we were able to adopt her. We were her foster parents, and she came into our home at a very young age. She was four days old, and 11 months later, we were able to adopt her. And her insertion into our life, all the four uh, other of us that were the Loftons at the time, we would all agree that it is the greatest thing that, that has happened to us as a family. God placing this precious little girl into our home and, and making her ours. She has given us more joy and life um, than we could have ever imagined. And it, is, it, is, it, is, it has been and is, and I imagine will continue to be, an incredible gift from God. And um, it breaks my heart. I think about this every now and then. It breaks my heart to think about her ever having a day where she begins to question whether her unusual entry into our family gives her some sort of less than status. Like, it breaks my heart. I hear these stories and just even think that there would ever be a moment in her life that she does not know that she is overwhelmingly loved by me and that, and that I'm her dad and will always be her dad. So in preparation of this potential moment, I, I do everything that I can. I, I go out of my way to, to overwhelmingly communicate her my unending and undying love for her and how much she is mine and what a precious gift she is and how much I love her. Because when that day comes, I want her bucket to be full of things that will combat the lie. But if and when that day does come, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to work even harder. I'm not going to be mad at her. How dare you? How dare you think that about me? I'm going to work even harder to communicate to her, to make sure that she knows that she is mine and will always be mine. So I ask you this question. Do you think that God is a better dad than me and do you think God loves you more than I love my daughters? Now, I would love for that question to be rhetorical. That you would just hear it and, and your immediate response would be, well, that's a rhetorical question, with an obvious answer of yes. But I'm afraid that for many of us, it is not an obvious rhetorical question with an answer of yes. So I'll phrase it differently to you. I'll say it this way. God is an infinitely better dad than me and loves you infinitely more than I do. And the same desire that he has, that I have, to make sure all my girls know that I am their dad and I love them, he has that same instinct but stronger. To the degree that where he sent his spirit to you to confirm this to you as often as you need it, to give you the constant assurance that you are his and he is yours. And I know probably some of us are feeling like, you know, I mean, we, t we keep talking about this. He's going to, Holy Spirit's going to guide me into all the truth. He's going to convict me about sin. He's now going to give me this assurance about the, the quality and depth of my relationship with God. But I need some help. I don't know that I've ever really experienced that before. And so we'll continue. Again, this is a, a, a several-week series. Let me just kind of give you just kind of a little primer thing that I would encourage you to do. Something you can do in the next few minutes. 
If you want to hear and feel and experience some of these things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life, I would encourage you to quiet your soul just a little bit. Quiet your life just a little bit. And give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to do something in you that maybe you haven't experienced before. To say something, to encourage you, to to help you feel something. But it's going to come when we're quiet. And I say that, and the music's about to be loud, right? And I guess I don't, I don't, I don't mean that. I don't mean that we can't loudly with our voices and our instruments proclaim our love to God. I'm not talking about the external noise. I'm talking about the internal noise. That all the doubts and all the confusion and all the things in my mind being a hundred different places, my mind for the next few minutes is going to be one place. And it's going to be me and God And I'm going to allow God to say and do anything in my heart in this moment that He wants to do. Start with that. And experience this kind of entry-level power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And then just see where God goes from there over the next few weeks. So we really kind of designed the last few minutes of our service around that idea. So we have response places in the back. You can pray at the cross. There's communion available. There's prayer candles. There's a prayer team that would love to pray with you if you needed. There's, we, we dim the light so that you can have private moments where you are. We want you to have a moment where all the real noise dies out and the volume of the Holy Spirit can be loud in your life. So let's just take a minute. Let's just take a minute and just see what God will do if we stop and say, God, and just ask Him the question, God, are you and I, are we are we good? Because the reality of it is, every person here who has given their life fully to God through Jesus Christ, you're good. And if you've not done that, then I hope this feels like a taste of what your life could be if you give your life fully to God through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, again, we just thank you for your spirit. And again, I am mindful of the people here who the reality is they're not good with you right now. They've not really understood and embraced the life that is offered through your son Jesus Christ. They've never embraced the sacrificial death that he, that he gave for us. God, I pray that they would. They would no longer settle for being on the outside of the fringes of some religion attending services. But God would give their hearts truly and fully to you. And God, I pray for the rest of us, God, with who have your presence in us. God, I pray that the fact that is true would be confirmed in, in, in our hearts today. And that God, that your spirit would be overwhelmingly present with us in these next few minutes. And I pray that you would just help us in the early stages of this journey to truly experience the power and the presence of your Spirit. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.